0: Good morning, my name's Mike England, and our scripture today comes from Revelation 21, 1-7. through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone also, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he said also, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. You may be seated.
1: good morning. I'm Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Glad that we could be in some air conditioning together this morning. Woke up this morning and like my windows were sweating because it's very hot outside already. Um, Well, today I have the privilege of of teaching from a passage that uh, really did transform my understanding of the gospel and my understanding of my story. So I'm just thrilled to be able to share that with you um, today. And, but last week, uh, I was actually on a vacation in California with my, my family, my wife, Janet, my 16-year-old daughter, Madeline, and we were with uh, some friends, uh, most of whom had smaller children. And those of you, I think many people in our congregation have, have smaller kids. Uh, many of you have had smaller kids. All of us have been smaller kids at some point in in our life, but it was fascinating to kind of be at my stage of parenting in life and like watch family dynamics of families with little kids on vacation. I was reminded, uh, of the idea that there's there's vacations and then there's trips. I don't know if you make those distinctions in your family, or not. Um, it's I think if you have little kids, you're never allowed to go on vacation. It's a it's a trip. Um, it's a trip that that you're taking and um, there's not much um, resting that that's happening for you. Uh, and I was reminded of that, but it was funny because. We were in several different locations, but at one point we were on Catalina Island, which is this beautiful island where people take yachts and sailboats. And, um, you know, I think Mac made it like the image of one of their operating systems at one point because it's a gorgeous island um, with crystal blue water and beautiful skies. There's so, mu- so much beauty to look at. And so as our family was walking down the street and ooing and aahing and all the, the beauty around us, we looked behind us and our friends with little kids, they weren't paying attention to any of that. What they were in was a conversation about ice cream and uh, to protect the innocent, I've changed the names in the story, but uh, there was the, the little boy, Johnny, is four or five years old, and, and and little Johnny, you know, his his whole thing was about getting ice cream, and Johnny likes to talk about himself in the third person. You ever hear little kids do that? Um, so he'd be like, Johnny's hungry, you know, talking about himself, <laughs> And they're like, all right, buddy, let's get some food. Um, is you know, constantly, Johnny, Johnny wants ice cream, you know. And so then what happened was all of life would go, and like the beauty of this place and the fact that we were on this expensive vacation would all fade away. And what was at the center of life was the pursuit of ice cream in that moment. And that's what happens with little kids, isn't it? is that their their desires, their needs, their little world becomes the world. Because to them, like whatever their need is, like whatever is happening to them in that moment is their world and is the world, right? There's not a concept of a bigger world. And that's part of what it means to be a little kid. Um, But the truth is that we're not that much different, are we? Is it just so easy in our life for whatever we're going through, for our little stories, for our desires, our wants, um, whatever is kind of right in front of us, whatever our disappointment or sorrow or moment kind of is, there's a temptation to, to, to think that our little story is the big story. It is the world. It is the only show in town. And so, you know, there's this idea, I think, just as a human, that maturity is, is growing in the capacity to understand that, like, my story is not the story, that my little world is not the world, right? And so it's very much true, I think, that Christian maturity is growing in our capacity to place our smaller stories in the context of God's bigger story. That's what it means to grow up as a Christian, to no longer be a child, um, is to understand that you're part of a bigger story. You know, and there's two times in life where I think that's a really hard problem for us. The the one time is when things are going really well. You know, when when things are going really well, uh, when you're having success, you know, at the beginning of that new relationship, uh, at the beginning of your parenting journey, as you start a new job, whatever it is, like, things are going well in life. There's a, that's when the temptation's really strong to forget that like, your world is not the world, right? Because your world is great. And like, why wouldn't you wanna live in it? It's amazing. But the second time is, is probably you know, more common for us. The second time it's really hard where we're tempted to believe that our story is the story is when life is not going well. When we're facing a lot of disappointment, when we're grieving, and when we're in sorrow, um, when when things aren't working out the way that we want, um, there's a temptation at that moment as well to forget that there's a bigger story all around us. And, and yet we need to remember um, in both those times that there's a bigger story that God is, is writing. Now, the reason I picked this verse or this passage from Revelation is because uh, it was about 10 years ago, I guess, um, when I first began to understand that there is one cohesive story that is God's story from beginning to end that makes sense. From Genesis to Revelation, God is telling us one story, and it's the true story of the world. It's the, it's the ultimate story where he reveals everything that we need to know about himself, about the world around us, about who we are, right, and about how things are going to end up at the end of time. And that might sound funny because 10 years ago, I was a pastor already. I had been through theological training. Um, I had taught the Bible for a long time. And yet somehow I had missed this idea that God's trying to tell us a big story, that our smaller story is supposed to find a context in God's bigger story. And that maturing and growing in Christ is really um, rooted in our understanding of what God is doing in the world and what we're invited into. And so this passage from Revelation was key for me in understanding that because this is at the end of God's story. This is at the end. This is the hope. This is what happens after all the other things have happened. This is where things end up. And so if we start with the end in mind, um, it's very important because that's how we understand the story that we were indeed made for. Now, you might have thought, oh, we're teaching from Revelation, that's a little bit scary. And I don't know how you think about the book of of Revelation, but you know, in our Christian culture, I think all too often, we've sort of relegated the book of Revelation to this weird book that we shouldn't talk about a lot because it's, who can understand it? It's strange, it's scary. People have a lot of arguments about it, and it just doesn't seem like something that we should really spend a lot of time in. But I'd like to argue that I think Revelation is supposed to be the most encouraging book in the scriptures, and I'm going to explain why that is today. And, you know, it's not a book that was written for us today to, to like, spend our lives trying to decipher a mysterious code to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Like, that is not the purpose of the book of Revelation, Well, what is the purpose of Revelation? Well, we have to, when we're trying to understand the scriptures, we have to look at who wrote it, who did they write it to, and why did they write it? And usually when we understand those three things, we begin to get a clue for, you know, what is the purpose of this particular piece of scripture? Well, uh, the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John. And um, John's a fascinating guy because he is the same John that... Was an apostle of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. He uh, wrote the gospel of, of John, he wrote the letters of John, and then he wrote Revelation. And he wrote it to churches, to seven churches, particularly in the first century. And so, what is happening in the context of Christianity in the first century? Well, we know from history, and this is extra biblical literature that you can go and read, we know a lot, actually, that this is. Uh, a world that's dominated by the Roman Empire and that it's a world that's extremely hostile to the Christian faith. There was an emperor. His name was Domitian. And this is probably at the height of Christian persecution. Uh, Christians were subjected to all manners of of terrible things that would happen to them. And so John's writing to a people that are beginning to suffer this kind of of persecution and who ultimately, many of them, will die uh, for proclaiming the name of Jesus. you know some of the things that were happening in the Roman Empire at the time of Domitian were uh, Christians were being crucified by the hundreds along the roadsides. Imagine that you'd be going in or out of Rome along the highways and the roads would just be lined with crosses, with people, uh, with Christians being crucified by being murdered slowly in agony so that you would see, look, if you follow Jesus, This is what it gets you in the Roman Empire. Uh, They were also burned alive. They would cover them in pitch and tar and set them on fire while they were still alive. They would put them in the arenas with wild animals, and they'd be torn apart. Um, They were impaled on stakes. Terrible things were happening to the Christians in this period. And so John is writing this beautiful letter to encourage people living in a context like that. Now, it's not likely that many of us will face persecution like that, but the truth is, and the reason why the book of Revelation is relevant um, to to all Christians throughout all history is that uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have made a commitment and allegiance to a king and a kingdom that is opposed to the systems of the world. And we're gonna suffer Um, As a result of that, if we're true followers of Jesus, the world, we're told, will be against us. Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. We're guaranteed that we'll have trouble. We're guaranteed that if we follow Jesus for long enough, we will experience persecution. We will experience hatred of those who hate Jesus, will hate us as well. And so in a world where... Uh, all the systems of the world are against the kingdom of God, Uh, we have this beautiful letter that reminds us of God's true story. And so that's the purpose of Revelation. And the reason that it's strange for us to read is that it's a book of imagery. And it's these images and symbols that aren't mysterious because they weren't mysterious to the people that John was writing to. What they were was they were allusions to uh, images and visual things in the Old Testament. And we're going to go over several of those today. And at some point, we'll have a chance, I hope, to, to go all the way through the book of Revelation together because it's one of my favorite things to, to teach through because it is so encouraging. But the symbology and the imagery is made Because if you think about it, when you're a people under persecution, when your life is difficult, when you're tempted to make your small story the bigger story of the world, you need something that's provocative, that awakens your imagination, that plays on your senses, that reminds you, no, there's a bigger story happening here. And that is exactly what John is writing in Revelation and why he uses this provocative imagery, because he's tying the story of God together and inviting people in to the true story of the world. Okay, well, what is this big story of the world that you were made for? Well, John tells us, and we start in verses 1 and 2. He says, then he saw, it's a revelation, he's seeing images, and he's writing it down. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So, the first thing that we need to know about the end of God's story is that it's very contrary to the way that we as Christians typically view the end of life as we know it. How do we view the end of our journey as Christians most often? We, we believe that we, we die and that we're, we're buried, and, and then somehow our soul uh, goes up to a place called heaven where we're with Jesus, and that's kind of the end of the story that we like to talk about, correct? Correct but that is not the end of the story of the scriptures. And that is not where your hope isn't supposed to be in flittering and floating and hovering in an ethereal space. That's not what you were made for. You were made as an embodied creature, that you're made to live in a body. You're not made to be disembodied and that you're made for a recreated world. And so the imagery is provocative that there's a new heaven and a new earth And it says, the first heaven, in other words, the heaven that we know now, the earth that we know now, the earth that you will go home and mow lawns in and have lunch in and go to school and go to work, that earth that you will live in today and this week, it says, will pass away, will pass away. And that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The image is much like this it's like an acorn. It's an acorn, when you take an acorn and you plant it in the ground, what happens? Given enough time, the acorn actually dies, right? And out of the death is birth something far more glorious than the little acorn, an oak tree, a majestic oak oak tree. And so the best way to understand the passing away of the earth as we know it is not this idea that's very common in the way we think about things that the earth doesn't just burn up and go away. It is transformed in the same way an acorn is transformed into an oak tree, that it passes away, but in its place, there's a new heaven and a new earth, That's a provocative idea, isn't it? And there's deep meaning for us as Christians because the earth that we're living in now is somehow mysteriously connected to the new earth that is coming. And the vision for our life isn't just that we die and that we go and float up to somewhere in heaven. It's this idea that no, God will bring a new heaven and a new earth to us. And it'll be a place that we will dwell with him forever and ever together in bodies on an earth. So a vision for you and for I is is that we will live for eternity with God in a physical place, in physical bodies. Have you thought about that before? What does that mean? There's a lot of meaning there, but part of it means that the things that we do now in this earth, in this body, somehow reverberate through eternity. Somehow it matters because it's not that it all burns up and goes away. It's that it's transformed eventually. Well, secondly, uh, John notes, and it's an interesting comment. He says that there is no more sea, that there's no more sea, which is interesting that he would like highlight that there's no more ocean. There's, and what, is it, what does that mean? Well, again, if we think about the Hebrew scriptures, the image of, of the sea is always tied to death into chaos, into destruction, into the ways of of the world. If you go back to the very beginning of the story of God in the book of Genesis, the opening lines have reference to the seas. And I'm going to read this, and I want you to pay attention to how does it make you feel as you hear about the sea in this passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. And yet God was present hovering over the deep waters. What happened to the deep waters in the passages to come in Genesis is that as God hovered over the deep waters, he transformed them, didn't he? And land appeared. And in the land, a garden appeared. And in the garden, he placed creatures of all kinds. And he created this perfect atmosphere for a man and a woman to live. And it says that he walked among them in the cool of the day. And so we see the sea at the beginning is this formless and deep void that God in the very beginning um, doesn't leave it that way. He transforms it and he orders the chaos of the sea. If we think about further passages throughout the Hebrew uh, text we, we know that the sea and that water is often a context for for death and for fear if you think about the story of Noah, how does God bring ultimate destruction and death to his creation when he 's displeased with it? He covers it with the sea and uh, nothing lives except for Noah and his family on on the boat and then God recreates life through Noah and his family and if you think about uh, the Israelites as they are in the Exodus story and they were fleeing the Egyptians, they were fleeing for their lives. What happens to the Egyptians? They pass through the Red Sea, and as the people of God move through the sea, miraculously, the sea covers over the Egyptians, and it kills them all. And so we know that the sea in the Hebrew stories is a place of death and destruction and darkness and uncertainty. And so what John's saying here is, remember, as you face a difficult life as your small story is really hard in the place that you're in right now, remember that in God's final story, there is no more place of darkness and despair and death. It is no more. That physically, God transforms the earth. And it, it's not a going back to the Garden of Eden, it's not the dream. Instead, he says, No, in the next verse, it's a city. It's a city. verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Why a city? Well, what command did God give in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve? He said... Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. The invitation was to join God as a co-creator, as one who labored over the physical creation to take all the natural resources to use human ingenuity and imagination and to create things of beauty and to create a place of flourishing for fellow human beings. And that was the ultimate invitation from God to people. Now, did it happen? No, immediately. They never make it from the garden and they're kicked out and then they're in exile. And one of the next images we have of a city is the city of Babel. Do you remember the story? The city of Babel is, says that human beings began to uh, dream up an idea of a perfect city. And they had this idea that they would build a building so high that it would reach into the heavens. And it was really a picture of human ambition. It was a monument to human ambition it was a city that would say, look at us. We are the center of the story. The final story is us. And look at the great thing that we'll create. And what does God do to the city of Babel? He brings chaos and he brings confusion. He makes them speak languages so they can't understand one another and they don't Um, build the city and instead they're fragmented. Why did God do that? Because God is gracious and he's merciful and he's kind because the city built by human ambition is not the big story. The way to human flourishing is not a city created by human hands. And we know that if we even visit the cities of the great country of the United States. I was recently in Portland, Oregon, which the Pacific Northwest was a place that we lived for several years when I was in the military. And I used to love Portland because Portland's a, I mean, it's a city of so much natural beauty. You can see Mount Hood in the distance. It's got amazing architecture that they've kept. Uh, It's got a food truck culture, which we totally need to, Like Co-Opt in Charlotte. We need way more food trucks, I believe. I have a dream that we have food trucks. Um, It's a city that has a lot of art and music. There's so much good happening in the city of Portland. And yet, when we stayed downtown, we were in a beautiful hotel downtown. And I remember as we walked out onto the street, and this is just several weeks ago, uh, there was people smoking crack in literally every free space that you could find because they've legalized um, doing hard drugs. Um, it's illegal to sell, but not, not illegal to actually do them. And so you've got this beautiful city with so much brokenness. And so I was just reminded being in that city, and that, and that story could be repeated in our city or in any city, is that there's, there's things in our culture and things in our cities that do point to the bigger story that are things of beauty and flourishing. And then there's things of deep destruction and of death, but you see, at the end of God's story, the story that you are made for, it's a city. It's a city. And it's this beautiful vision that John gives that there's going to be a city not made for human ambition as a monument to us as the center of the story. But instead, it's a holy city, the new Jerusalem, and that it's going to be created by God himself. And that it's going to come down and be the center of the new world. Did you know that in ancient times, uh, you know, Christians for centuries, uh, when they were buried, would, would put their burial grounds facing which direction? To the east. Facing to Jerusalem. Why? Why would you be buried facing to Jerusalem? Because you see, they believed in this big story. They believed viscerally that You know, the way that God's story would end is that God's kingdom is gonna come down in a physical way, in a physical city, and it's gonna come down and and that will be the center of the new world. And they thought to themselves, "I, I want to, at that moment, when I'm raised from my grave, I wanna be facing the new city. I wanna see it for myself. That's how deeply Christians through the ages have believed in this story that you were made for. And we're called to remember that today, that it would shape our lives and shape our communities. Secondly, we're told that not only in God's ultimate story will the physical world be transformed, but there'll be a transformation of our relationship with God as well. Verse 3, beautiful imagery. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, can you imagine being John and seeing all these visions and hearing the voice of God himself? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And so it's an image of God physically with us, but in a brand new way, even better than it was in the Garden of Eden, even better than it was for the disciples when they were with the Lord Jesus. Have you ever thought how amazing would it be to be one of the disciples, to walk with Jesus, to have seen him and had eaten with him? Did you know that what you're promised, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, is something far better than that? That for eternity, the way that your story is meant to end is that you will be with the Lord Jesus in a body, in your body, that's been resurrected and transformed in perfect relationship with the God who made you, that you'll be able to see him and to have breakfast with him and to sing with him and to do work alongside of him. And it's a beautiful image that God gives that our relationship with him will be transformed over and over and over again in the passage. John proclaims that God will dwell, that he will make his home with his people. Home, that God's home is with you. Do you think of yourself that way? When you think about whatever it is that you're going through in your life right now, I don't know what disappointment you're facing right now in your life. I don't know what sorrow and grief you're facing in your life right now. I don't know what thing hasn't worked out the way that you hoped it would, but we're all going through something. But no matter what you're going through, the encouragement is this, is that your God who made you wants to be with you and that he's making a place for you. Not in some ethereal space that you float and hover to, but in a place where you will exist in your body that's made new, in a world that's made new, and that God will call his home with you. You see, that's where our identity is made to lie, in our witness with God. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah sixty-six twenty-two: As surely as my new heavens and earth will remain, so will you always be my people with a name that will never disappear, says the Lord. I wanna point out that the imagery of marriage is very important here as well. It says that the city is coming down like a bride adorned for a groom. What is he saying? Why is there a city that's a bride coming to be joined with God? It's because in the Hebrew text, marriage was a covenant relationship, a promise between a man and a woman and their God, a bond that couldn't, could only be broken by death. And that was made as a way for people to participate in the creation of humans. That out of a covenant marriage relationship, what was made to come out of that is new life. And so in the same way, the city of God comes as a bride adorned for the king. And that the union of a perfect place of flourishing for people with the God who made them is supposed to be this place, this ultimate relationship of new life that will produce life over and over and over again for all of eternity. It's a beautiful image of God with his people. Lastly, the story that you were made for not only points to a transformation of the physical world, a transformation of your relationship with God, but also a transformation of your difficulties, verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You know, there's an acknowledgement here that life this side of eternity is full of death and it's full of pain and it's full of crying. And this is an acknowledgement from the God that made you that it's not the way it's supposed to be. And you know that. But you know, so many of us are trying to find a way out of our small stories under our own power, aren't we? You see, when you lose sight of the big story, you lose sight of the idea that when God comes again, right, when he comes to make all things new, he'll take all your sorrows and he'll transform them, that suddenly everything that you've gone through will make sense in a way that it can never make sense now. But when you lose sight of that, there's a temptation to find your way out under your own power, and it only leads to more disappointment disappointment, and pain and sorrow. The only way out of our sorrow is to remember God's bigger story, that he will transform our difficulties, that there will come a day, my friends, this isn't a theological idea, this is there will come a day that you will experience if you're a follower of Jesus, that he will wipe away your tears, that he will bring ultimate and complete comfort to your sorrows. And some of you have faced some horrific things in your life and some of you will face Yet, so, still difficult things. But you see, when God finally comes, He will wipe away our sadness, our disappointment, fear, our shame, and our grief. He says, It is finished. What's the path to this? How do I believe this? How do I embrace this life to come? Well, he gives us the answer at the end of the passage. Verse 6, he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, you need one who's at the beginning and the end of a story that's bigger than your own. We're all in the middle of a story that we didn't start and we can't finish. And if you don't remember that, you're going to get lost. And the way out is to remember that there's a king, alpha, the beginning of the alphabet in the Greek, omega, the Z in the alphabet at the end of the Greek. He's just saying, I am the bookends of the big story. It's not so much the events that are gonna happen, it's me as a person. I am the one that was hovering over the waters in the beginning, and I am the one that's gonna come back with the city so that you could flourish and have life. So the first thing is we remember the King Jesus is the bookends of our story. And if we lose sight of that, we can't flourish. Secondly, he says, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. To the thirsty I will give water. What, What does that line remind us of? You know, the Apostle John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, Uh, In in John chapter 4, he tells a, a story of the woman at the well. And here's a woman with a really messed up life whose smaller story is a disaster. And at that moment when she meets Jesus, her entire life is her little story. That's why she's at the well. She's full of shame. She's avoiding people around her. And she meets the king of the universe. And as she's getting water, he says to her, I can give you water that you'll never be thirsty again. John also gives us this language of thirst. John chapter 19, verse 28. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, the scriptures say that he knew his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he uttered the words, I am thirsty. Have you ever thought about what he meant by that? Was it just physical thirst? No. You see, the Lord Jesus was crying out the deepest cry of all mankind. He was crying out a cosmic thirst because in that moment, the entire weight of sin of the world was upon his shoulders. And he experienced the utter, utter desolation and separation from God. And you see in that moment, he cried out I thirst for the living water. I thirst for the mercy and the justice and the righteousness and the love of God. But in that moment, Jesus was cut off from all of that for your sake. He was ultimately thirsty. And yet God fulfilled his thirst that he died and like an acorn planted into the ground, he died and rose again to be the first fruit among all creation. Have you ever thought about the idea that the resurrection of Jesus is not the end of the story of resurrection? The scriptures say he was the firstborn among the dead, the first fruit of creation. When we look at the risen Lord Jesus, we're to see an entire creation story being resurrected and renewed that in the same way the Lord Jesus was resurrected in bodily form so the entire earth will be resurrected so that you too will be resurrected and the body that you have now will be transformed and that you will be made to live in a city of God in perfect communion with him in perfect relationship with him and that as you experience thirst this side of eternity as you experience that longing for something that you can't experience on this side of eternity that every sadness, every disappointment, every grief, every shame suddenly becomes thirst that God will fulfill because he promises to be the living water as he makes all things new. You see, friends, we're all longing to be made new. We're longing for the world to come. And I don't know where you are in your story right now, and what you're facing right now, but I guarantee you the temptation of your heart this week is to be drawn into your smaller story, to find your identity there, and to get sucked into it, and you'll just get more depressed, more anxious, more afraid, more shame-filled, unless you remember there's a bigger story. And it's the context of your life as a follower of Jesus And that's how you can face whatever this world has to throw at you. With courage, with commitment, with singing, whatever the world has for you, Jesus is enough. I pray that you hear it and receive it as an encouragement to you today to press on as you're thirsty to believe in the cross and to believe yet in the resurrection, to Christ be the glory, amen. Let's pray, Father, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the way. We thank you that you are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, that our story is not the story, but your story is the ultimate story. And Lord, we look forward to the day that our bodies are made new, that our relationships are made new, that we're restored completely and that we dwell at home with you on an earth, a physical earth where we're made perfectly and where we flourish. And Lord, until that day, would you help keep us as your faithful people? Let us not lose sight. Let us remind each other of the great things to come And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.
2: Amen. Will you stand with me as we respond today?
1: Friends, what a joy it is to worship with you today. Um, I pray that you've encountered the risen Lord Jesus in some way today. That's what it's all about here. And I'm reminded that, you know, worship has two parts. There's a part where we receive, and then there's a part where we respond um, to the revelation that we've received. And I don't know what revelation you received from God today, but I pray that you saw him in a new way today in a way that was meaningful in your story. Um, and we wanna help you respond in, in an appropriate way uh, to the revelation that, that you've heard. And you know, response comes in lots of different forms. Um, one way is prayer, we respond in prayer. And maybe, maybe there's just a prayer that's um, on your heart today that maybe you're ready to cry out, Lord, I'm thirsty. Um, Lord, give me water. Lord, I'm trapped in my little story and I don't know the way out. I don't know what your prayer is, but you don't have to pray alone. Um, I'm here, our team is here. We'd love to pray with you that you don't journey alone in your response to God. Um, Second, if you'd like to participate further in the community of the church, you know, there's an aspect of the faith that we need to be in, in smaller groups of people where we can be known where we can share our stories with one another, where we can share meals together. And um, that's really the church's uh, vision for groups. And so if you'd like to get connected in a deeper way, as you're thinking about heading into the fall and doing life intentionally with Jesus in the fall, uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. There's a connection table out there, but really anybody with a lanyard can help you get connected um, to the life of the body here. And finally, if you feel prompted to give as a way of response, you can do that online or there's boxes um, outside as well. Now, uh, if you're able, would you extend your hands as a way of receiving blessing as you go out into the world to live out your story? Now, may the love of the Father and the grace of the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours today and every day. In the name of Christ, go in peace to love and serve the Lord, amen.